welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've spent my entire career as an advocate, connector, problem solver, and master communicator at the highest levels of government and corporate America. With She Said, She Said podcast, I'm sharing what I've learned that's helped me, and I'm drawing additional perspective from a broad range of women who are creating amazing opportunities for themselves and others. Their stories hold important advice and perspective about common challenges and the best ways to tackle them. I know your time is precious, but stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hi friends, my guest today is corporate CEO turned political innovator, Catherine Gale. Catherine is the founder of the Institute for Political Innovation. She's also the originator of the politics industry theory. That theory is now the subject of a terrific book that she co-authored with Michael Porter of Harvard Business School. It's entitled, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. This book is a fascinating read, and my conversation with Catherine will really make you think. She was formerly the president and CEO of Wisconsin-based Gale Foods. That's a $250 million high-tech food manufacturing company that had been in Catherine's family since the late 1890s. Catherine's road to political innovation is an interesting one. She's going to talk about that and her ideas for realigning political incentives with their primary customer, you. We also talk about the importance of taking responsibility and taking credit when it's earned. One of the toughest challenges, frankly, and a question that I get so often is how do you do that? How do you do that without coming across in a way that you don't want to come across? We talk about all of that. Catherine's perspective is so thoughtful and so practical. I know you'll really enjoy this conversation. So stick around. Catherine Gale, welcome to She Said, She Said. I am so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Let's jump right in. Catherine, as a former corporate CEO, remaining competitive and relevant to customers was a key part of your job. Now, looking at politics from that same vantage point, you say the political system isn't necessarily broken, but instead it's working just as it was designed to. Can you talk for just a minute about what you mean by that? What's wrong with the system? Absolutely. You know, it is the work that I do today is really only possible because I spent the bulk of my career in business. And I, in my last decade of my business career, I was running a high-tech food manufacturing company in Wisconsin. And at the same time, I was pretty involved in politics, traditionally, like picking candidates and, and working for their election. But I was really disappointed with the results that were coming out of Washington, D.C., and that disappointment kept increasing. So I started thinking about why that was, and that's when, you know, it sort of was longer than this light bulb that I'll tell you, but it really came to me when I was doing a company strategy project that the way people in politics are successful 
is completely different than the way than the things that it took for us to be successful in business. So in my case, and in mostly every, you know, for-profit business, basically you make your customers happy and then you are successful as a business. And if you don't make your customers happy, a new competitor comes in to do that instead of you. Right. And it is that competition and that, um, that forces innovation that drives results and that holds companies accountable for not taking advantage of customers, not charging too much. That's what healthy competition does. And it became clear, well, why does the politics industry work so differently? Which is to say, wow, we have a classic duopoly, Republicans and Democrats, and nobody is happy, meaning the customers are very dissatisfied. Let's say Congress has, you know, between an 80 and 90% disapproval rating. Right. And yet we never see any new competition. So how does it work this way? Which is now brings me back to your question. Sorry, that was a preamble where you said, I, I note in my book, politics isn't broken. It's doing what it's designed to do. That's the only thing pretty much everybody in the country agrees on. Washington's broken but it's also the thing we're wrong about because we think, poli- we think the politics industry was naturally designed to serve the voters, the citizens, the public interest, but actually that's just the wrong assumption. And when you end up looking in detail at all the rules that are in the industry of politics and the norms and the practices, they've really been made up or optimized by and for the benefit of the people in the business of politics, which is to say our two political parties and all the other actors and organizations that make their living in this industry. And they are independent of the satisfaction of most customers, meaning average voters. The way it works right now is they do well by serving only party primary voters, donors, and special interests, and they don't need to care about the rest of the customers. So the core of my work and the theory that I developed called politics industry theory is understanding how that's so precisely so we can understand where are the levers to alter that dynamic. Yeah. Catherine, talk for a second about the light bulb moment where you put the pieces together. I know you met your co-author and the terrific book that you guys have written is called The Politics Industry, and I'll include a link in the show notes for this episode. But you met Michael Porter when he was advising you on business strategy. Talk about where that light bulb moment came on and when you really connected the dots in this way. So uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, I was really involved in politics from like the mid uh, 2000s on, or kind of even the early to mid 2000s. And you were still and, in the CEO of your- And I was running Gale Foods, which was my uh, $250 million food manufacturing company in Wisconsin. Yes, we made cheese, you know. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and loved that job. Uh, and Michael Porter, as you mentioned, uh, the you know, famous strategy and economics professor from Harvard Business School, 
advised me on a classic company strategy project. So people who have gotten their MBAs will recognize Michael Porter's Five Forces. He really is considered the father of modern corporate strategy. So there we were in Germantown, Wisconsin, doing exactly what I had learned before, long before I met him, you know, during my MBA, which is using these five forces to say, how are we going to grow my cheese business? And so you're figuring out who are the competitors in this space? Who's getting the value in the marketplace right now? Where is the power? Do your customers have power? Do your suppliers have power? Or do you have power? All of these, you know, questions. And as I was doing that strategy, it was happening at the exact same time. Essentially, I was running this parallel analysis in my head. It was light bulb moment after light bulb moment about politics as I'm thinking about the power my customers had and then saying, oh, but voters don't have any of those customers, or don't have any of that power, sorry. And particularly when we got to barriers to entry. Oh, yeah. And I thought, you know, that one of, I mean, that if I didn't have ever any new competition, I'd be able to just keep doing well no matter what. I was, no matter how high cost my products were, no matter how little innovation I had. And it became really clear in that barriers to entry section that, oh, there's huge barriers to entry in politics, which I knew there were. Right. It was this time of putting it into the exact same framework oh yeah, that's what we're talking about all the time, that independents can't run, or that you know we're stuck with these two parties. But it made, it, it brought such a clarity. And then uh, the long story short from that point is, I eventually sold my business in part because I wanted to dedicate full time to political innovation. And initially, I did not plan to write a book or what I did previously, this report at Harvard Business School. I just plan to get people to make these changes that I believed we should make. But what happened is when I tried to convince other business leaders that we needed, you know, to change the way we vote, I couldn't get buy-in or at least not at the scale that we really needed. And I finally realized that what was so evident to me was just not evident. And I said, you know what, I need to write up this business case. I need to show everybody in business how politics is not irrational. It operates according to the same competitive forces that operate in our industries. Because then I believe that if people understood how that was working and what was wrong, they would be able to see the return on investment from certain specific changes that I was for which I was advocating. And so I decided to write up my whole five forces, you know, theory and politics industry theory. And, and I was really lucky because I was able to convince Michael to be my co-author. He wasn't really into it, wasn't <laughs> into politics. He wasn't, you know, but I knew that if he joined me as co-author, it would really help, you know, with some instant credibility. And certainly it absolutely did. Um, and, and then also after a period of time, not only did I convince him of the validity, because otherwise, of course, he wouldn't have put his name on it, um, but he became quite passionate about it as well. So yeah, it was, so it was a great partnership. 
So maybe walk me through too, because I know when people sometimes hear government reform, which is not what you're talking about, you're talking about political reform, they hear political reform, they immediately think of some of the historic efforts in the past. Sometimes those efforts line up on one side of the political spectrum or the other. Maybe give folks um, a better understanding of your own personal politics and how you have approached this, maybe your own journey in politics and sort of how you come to this. Yeah, I'll, I'll absolutely talk about that. But the first thing I'll, I'll note is I actually try to never say that I work in political reform. Mm. I talk about political innovation mm. in the way that we have innovation and it drives progress in every other industry. That's what I think we need in politics. And political reform, to me, has often been, and you really alluded to this, Laura, a Trojan horse for partisan advantage, one sure. side or the other, mm -hmm. or it has been often feel-good changes that make the system seem more fair or more democratic or more representative, which those things are important. We need to be fair, democratic, and representative, but may not have been focused on changing the outcomes from government. And so I sometimes talk about making things more fair as being the booby prize of these political systems changes, because we want things to be more fair and change the results. I don't sort of want it to be more fair and still keep getting the same bad results in a more fair way. Okay, so now back to your question though, how did I come to this? Well, right now I'm, I describe myself as politically homeless because with only two real parties with any power to choose from, I do not fit into either of those platforms or you know, particular candidate visions these days. I really never did, but nonetheless, we all grew up and there's two to choose from and from time, you know, you choose. Although I did, I did choose libertarian for quite some time in high school. Um, so I pretty much chosen across the board throughout my life and my adult life when I was playing the traditional candidate game before I realized that that was never gonna get us where we needed to go. Meaning I would you laugh were in, you Democrat. Were, yeah, okay. You were investing in particular presidential candidates. Absolutely. Or, I actually lived in Chicago for 15 years and uh, spent some time in government here. I worked for Mayor Daley. And in that time, I got to know then State Senator Barack Obama. And I was unbelievably impressed by him. And then was part of the Chicago group that really supported his presidential uh, campaign from the start in 2008. And it was after that campaign when I was paying a great deal of attention to Washington, D.C., that I became more and more disillusioned with the system and also more and more disillusioned with Congress. Mm. Um, I really believe that we were going to have a post-partisan you know, Washington, D.C., where we were going to come together and solve all these complex problems. I mean, you know, I sort of laugh at myself now, but 
I thought we were for sure about to do all of that. And then we did, when I say we did none of it, I'm not saying there's never been any progress made anywhere, you know, but I watched how Congress handled everything and how we passed the ACA with no Republican votes, which is a blot on both sides, you know, how we had a government shutdown in 2013, how we didn't do anything on immigration reform. I mean, it just, and oh, and Simpson Bowles fell apart. Debt and deficit is a huge issue for me. I just thought, how is this possible? How are we running the country this way? So, um, so that was my journey through there. I talk about it in as my five stages of political grief. You know, sort of how Elizabeth Moss Cantor has the five stages of grief, right. and then you I talk about it in the book. Yeah, yeah, I talk about it in the book. So I went through candidates, and then I said, "Oh, it's not candidates. I'll work on policy." And then I said, "Oh, policy isn't going to do it. I'll work on culture." Oh, culture's not going to do it because in the end, you know, everybody does the same thing. And eventually I came to it's the system. You know how James Carville coined it's the economy stupid in the Bush campaign of 2000, uh, 1992. I like to say, you know, it's the system stupid. <laughs> Meaning that's where we're at. We got to right. fix the system. Now, in the meantime, yes, people should care about the candidates and care about who we get elected. But we should realize that if, if there was some mythical version of perfect candidates, the right talent, you know, that could all populate Congress, uh, given the system as it is, we still wouldn't get, we still wouldn't solve our big problems. Yeah. They're complex. They require trade-offs. If it was easy, even our broken system would do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about the specific recommendations. There've been a number of things over the years that I alluded to before that have been teed up things like term limits and gerrymandering and those sorts of, and, and election reform. Um, that's not what you're proposing. Let's talk about maybe a couple of the fundamental areas of what you and Michael are putting forward. So I do like to quote Michael Porter. Uh, one of his famous quotes is strategies about choosing what not to do. Mm. And I certainly always use that in business and I use it here in choosing what we focus on in political innovation. We cannot have a laundry list of things. We have to find what is at the intersection of powerful and achievable, which is to say, I'm all about action. I don't want to recommend to people something that seems really great, but we could never get done because it's against the constitution or because it requires a constitutional amendment that's going to, you know, take, decades or something. Uh, so by achievable, I mean, we could, we could see results within a matter of years, not decades is how I describe it. I also require things if they are inachievable to be nonpartisan, they cannot be Trojan horses for one side of the current two of the duopoly. And then they need to be powerful. And by powerful changes, I mean, they have to affect the likelihood that Congress delivers results in the public interest, which gets back to what I said before. They can't just make us feel that the election is more fair. For example, gerrymandering, which is, you know, politicians picking their voters instead of voters, their politicians. It's really sort of undemocratic, not fair. It seems bad, you know. But if we changed it and left everything else the same, 
we wouldn't actually get different outcomes. It would be more fair, but we wouldn't have fundamentally changed the calculus of the legislators that right now keeps them from working together. Interesting. The same thing with campaign finance. If right now we could, I mean, there's too much money, I suppose you can say, and we can find great examples of that everywhere. But if we were able to artificially reduce by a factor of 10 right now the amount of money in politics, but we leave the other incentives the same, we're just going to make it 10 times cheaper for people to get the same results out of the system because you have to find where the bottleneck is. Mm. It's, like on a, it's like on a highway. If you have multiple bottlenecks and you expand the highway and fix a bunch of them, but you leave you know, the, the biggest bottleneck alone, you'll just get everybody to that bottleneck faster, right? So, so you have to figure this out. And I talk about, you know, the efficient frontier in investing, right? where, you know, for you have the most amount of return for, you know, the least amount of risk and where you are on that. We want the efficient frontier of political innovation. Mm. So what's the most bang we can get for the most achievable thing we can do, you know? And that is to change how we vote, to change how our elected officials get and keep their jobs, how they are successful in their careers. And right now there's no connection between, uh, you know, acting the public interest and getting reelected. There's connection between doing what party primary voters who are further to the extreme want you to do in getting reelected, doing what donors and special interests want to do. So we need to change two things in our elections. The package is called final five voting. First, to get rid of party primaries. We need a single top five primary where everybody on the ballot, everybody runs on the same ballot. There's no Democrat primary or Republican primary. And at the end of primary day, you add up all the votes and the top five finishers will advance to the general election. Now, even if gerrymander is still intact, we don't know who won. Right now, you always know who won in 80% of the districts after the primary. But now you're going to have five finishers going to the general election. Could be two Democrats, two Republicans, and independents, you know, any mix of people. So now we'll have a dynamic and diverse debate of visions, ideas, innovations, personalities, between the primary and the general. And then in the general, now that we have five, what we want to do, Laura, is figure out which one of those five has the broadest appeal to the most number of voters. Because if you had five and you voted how we vote now, which is plurality voting, someone could win with 21%. Like they sort of all split the votes equally. Right. And then you'd let one of these five squeeze forward without real majority support that wouldn't be an improvement. Mm. So we'll use instant runoffs in the general election. You do this by allowing voters the opportunity to rank their candidates. People are somewhat familiar with the term ranked choice voting. Right. You get to say out of these five, you know, this is my favorite all the way down to you know, your fifth choice, something like over my dead body, do I want this person to be elected? You get to say that. You can rank as many or as few as you want. And then when the polls close, they count up all the first place choices. And if one of those five candidates is over 50%, well, great. The election's over. That person wins. But if nobody yet has true majority support, 
you begin this process of instant runoffs where you simply eliminate the person in last place. Voters who have had selected the candidate who's now been kicked out now have their single vote transferred to their next choice. Because mm. everybody can only vote once, okay? But um, then you have the second, you have the first runoff, and now there are four candidates left, and you keep doing that until one candidate reaches majority support. And that's great because now you have majority support, but here's the real thing that's great about that. By voting this way, we can have as much new competition as the marketplace wants. Here's what I mean by that. One of the, the main reason why we don't get competition to Democrats and Republicans today is because of the spoiler effect or the wasted vote. So what you think if, if under today's rules, if you saw five candidates, you would think to yourself and, and the Democrats and the Republicans would tell you, don't you dare vote for that libertarian one of the five because you'll just take votes away from the Republican right. and accidentally let the Democrat win. And if you wanted to vote for someone on the left, like a, like a Green Party environmentalist kind of candidate, you'd be told, oh, don't you dare. You'll just spoil the election for the Democrat. So both sides always call new competition a wasted vote or a spoiler vote. But when we use instant runoffs by allowing voters to rank their preferences, no vote is ever wasted and no vote spoils the election for the candidate you like, you know, sort of second best. You don't accidentally help elect the candidate you like the least. And that's how we'll get the competition. And how would that affect, Catherine, maybe getting more women into elected office or creating more competition? Does that have an impact on maybe getting more women to run, lowering the barrier of, or, or, of entry? Or does that matter? Oh, it totally matters that we lower the barrier to entry. But what I love about the system is that we're lowering the barrier to entry for everyone mm. and in a way that is not, that continues to respect and, and benefit from the best forces of healthy competition. Because here's something really important about healthy competition. It's not just about changing who wins. In fact, my proposals aren't really focused on changing who wins. It's about changing what the winners are incented to do and on whose behalf they're incented to do it. So, Go back to 92, Perot ran against Clinton and Bush, and right. he only got 19% of the vote, but he ran on debt and deficit issues. And the pressure that his competition on those issues put on both Democrats and Republicans is what produced the balanced budgets and then surpluses of the second Clinton term, because it was competitive pressure for that. Interesting. So in this system now, we will have lower barriers to entry for, in a sense, startup candidates. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of money it would take to get into one of the five spots in the primary is less by far than it takes to get out of, you know, the single primary that matters in whatever district, you know, in the district that 
for which that uh, is sort of where the party's gerrymandered to be in power. I don't know if I'm even saying that right. Right, but, right, right. So, so it doesn't immediately mean that more women win. It means that more women will find it easier to compete and not just more women, but more, uh, more conservative women, more, um, more millennial women, more like more different combinations of people who just don't put together the package today that gets through that narrow entry point. Meaning the primaries. You're talking primarily about the primaries. Yeah, drive the needle. Yeah, drive drive candidates to the left and drive candidates to the right, depending upon their political persuasion. I see. Yeah, and now now let's say someone runs and they get the experience of running in a general election and maybe they squeaked into that primary in the, quote, fifth place. But now they get... They get prepared, they get known, they do a good job, they learn, they come back, they they run again. Mm. And in the meantime, that voice, their voice, will have been a part of the debate. And if voters resonate with it, and you see that in the results of the choices, then their impact will be felt as whoever does win considers what to do. So we benefit from all the competitors, not just from the person who ends up winning. And then over time, competition, healthy competition ends up with more of an equilibrium than the artificial, uh, the artificial situation that we still see where women are so underrepresented in Congress relative to the population. Right. It's just clear it's not that the competition is not free and unfettered because we would have adjusted more already. Yeah. So fascinating. So incredibly fascinating. Okay, I have so many <laughs> I have so many questions. What, what what is required to get something like ranked choice voting or final five voting? across the finish line? Because this is something you have to do on a state-by-state basis, right? It's not a constitutional thing. It is a state-by-state reform. Right. I mean, actually, it, you know, in our constitution, Article One gives every state the power to make these rules of the election. So since they've given us the power, we better hold it carefully and do a great job with that power. You know, we're responsible for that. And so half, so what that means, each state can do it. And then how the states would change these rules depends on their own state constitution and laws. Any state in the country could pass a bill in their legislature and the governor could sign it. And then they could have these new rules. Half the states also have the option to bypass their legislature and put a initiative, a ballot initiative on, you know, one of their elections, and then the citizens can vote for it. And depending on state law, you know, you would make the change if you have over 50% or like Florida requires over 60% for certain initiatives. So you can do it one of those two ways. And each state, you know, can choose what direction um, they want to go. 
Now, the really exciting news today, and I hope this is still you know, the case when you put this podcast out there, Alaska, on November 3rd, became the first state in the country to vote on, in a ballot initiative, my you know, favorite political innovation, which is this combination of primary chain, you know, open top five primaries and instant runoffs using ranked choice voting in the general election. And the, the only thing they did different is they have the top four finishers advancing. So instead of calling it final five voting, let's call it final four voting. And as of this morning, they're still counting. Final four voting was ahead by about 500 votes. Wow. So and 500. I, <laughs> Five zero 500 zero. votes, yeah. Wow. And I am very hopeful that by the time you have this podcast out, that it will be confirmed that Alaska has implemented healthy competition in elections as the first state in our union to do so. And Catherine, were they a target of yours? Were they kind of, uh, were you working with the folks in Alaska to do this or did, th- did their initiative sort of pop up independently of yours? And then also a second question to that, how do you get momentum for this idea? Yeah, so um, we definitely worked with them. I can't speak for, you know, who came, I mean, we didn't go and find them. Mm. So we worked with them early, but they probably reached out to us. I wouldn't take credit for any of, you know, the work that they've done, but we collaborated with them. I did a lot of speaking I raised money for them. Um, you know, those of us in this political change industry know. Yeah, but but other- why, why, why do they recognize it sooner? than other states in the union. What is it about Alaska that's different in that regard? It's not that Alaska's different. It's the small number of people in Alaska who said, let's do this. Mm. So people are always asking me, particularly political people very familiar with campaigns, they say, well, what states should you do this in? As if there's an analysis we should run to say, based on these demographic characteristics and you know, the policy preferences and the voter turnout numbers, et cetera, these would be the states that will adopt this first. Right. So that's not how I look at it at all. <laughs> Here's where I put my money. Just like a business person wants to invest in management teams, I want to invest in the leadership. Who's going to make this happen? It's the states with the most committed leadership where they're saying, we're going to do what it takes and we're going to we're going to spend the time to make the case to everybody. Let me interrupt myself. I founded an organization with, uh, you know, another CEO in Wisconsin called Democracy Found to, as he put it, put my money where my mouth is, Uh you know, so to move for these changes in Wisconsin. And three years later, you know, we're working on it's going really well but we're taking our time to get people on board. And another friend of mine, someone I went to high school with, we had lunch not too long ago, and she said to me, you must be so surprised, like by all these people that are on board with this, and because we have such bipartisan support. And I said, actually, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, maybe I should be surprised, 
But this makes so much sense that there's never been a part of me that has not believed that if people took the time to understand what healthy competition could bring to solving complex issues in a collaborative, innovative kind of way would do for our country that people would say, no, no, I don't want that. No, I, I like, I, I'd rather have it how it is. I'd rather that the two sides keep hating each other and demonizing each other. And I'd rather make sure they're not incented or rewarded for working together. I mean, people don't choose that. Mm-hmm. They, the reason they choose it right now, Laura, is because they think that's the only choice they have. And if you do only have two choices and they're this far apart, you can imagine you'd be pretty darn, many people would be pretty darn passionate about one or the other. Right. But if you say to them, you know what, you could actually have something different. You could still keep believing conservative, right of center things or believing liberal, left of center things and have a government that's able and capable of working through some of those differences to craft solutions and create solve problems and create opportunities in Washington, D.C. I mean, people don't turn that down. Mm. So the challenge is mostly, do people give you the time to listen to that? Are they open to believing that there could be something that could deliver that? And it's our own passive acceptance of the system the way it is as normal, like, like it couldn't get any better than that. I mean, we expect more performance from our phones than we <laughs> expect from our political system. And this is you know, the United States of America. Yeah. We should raise our sights. We're always expecting things of the people. Like they're supposed to do everything in spite of the system. But how about we have great candidates, great people, and a great system? We can have it. Yeah. And we just didn't know. And I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know. I was doing traditional stuff. Yeah. It's amazing to me, actually. Sometimes I, I lie in my bed, I'll wake up at night, and I'm like, oh, my God, is it really this good? And I think, yeah, it really is. No, don't get me wrong, Laura. This is democracy. Democracy is messy. It is hard. And we have hard problems. If we implement final five voting, we will have democracy that is messy and hard trying to solve hard problems. But what we'll have is some success. Whereas right now what we have is messy, hard, and we solve nothing. So let's have messy, hard, and solving. Catherine, what does all of this do to the, the enormous amount of money spent? And I, I'm not going to come down on one side or the other. It is what it is. It is a necessary evil, if you ask me. But it's a huge amount of money that is spent on politics, spent on primaries, spent on general elections. Talk about what happens to money in the system with uh, fi- final five voting or ranked choice voting. Right. So final five voting is, um, I'll just help all of the listeners, is the name for the combination of open top five primaries and ranked choice voting in general elections. Got it. And we really need to do both, by the way. Like from here on out, 
everything I work on will be both. Other people may work on one or the other, like half of it, but I'll be working only on things that are both. You need both. Things that are both. And this is the thing where one plus one is not two. Primary reform or primary innovation plus, you know, voting innovation, the general election is like one plus one is 10. <laughs> I mean, it has to be both. Okay, so um, what does it do to money? Well, let's ask ourselves, what's the real problem with money in politics? Here's a couple points I'll make. It's not that some number, like some specific dollar number of money in politics would be helpful and some and above some specific dollar it's now no longer helpful it is what is that money getting you know and so if it's a super small number but it's still getting policies that benefit the few at the expense of the many or that get in the way of a rational solution to a problem, well, then that's a problem no matter what amount of money it is. And right now, one of the main reasons there's so much money in politics is because the return on investment is so good. In general, people who have a lot of money have gotten that because they've made good decisions about deploying their money to make more money instead of lose money. So they are likely making many good decisions about deploying their money in politics to get results that they would like out of politics. And, and by the way, some people are deploying their money as a special interest for the general interest. Money doesn't always go in the system to benefit that individual person for something that's bad for everybody else. There's a lot of money in there for really, you know, sort of reporting things that, I mean, depending on your view, would be good for everybody. It's not all right. self-interested, but nonetheless, what we have to do to get self-interested, few, you know, benefiting few versus many money out of politics is we just have to make the investment not worth it. And how we make the investment not worth it is not by artificially reducing the amount of money, which I mentioned earlier, we have to increase the power of votes. Think of it as an exchange rate. The problem we have right now is not too much power to money. The problem we have is too little power to votes. Because the only votes that matter are that small number of votes in the one dominant party's primary. Those are the only votes that have any power. Yeah. It's like if you went to the bank to try to exchange your dollar for some euros, and it is like, is the dollar worth a lot or is the dollar worth a little? You can exchange a primary vote for a lot of action, or at least ideological um, sort of positioning mm. on the part of whoever you're voting for. Primary vote will get you a lot. A general election vote is going to get you nothing. This is like worthless. It's immaterial. It doesn't matter. I always tell people if you can only vote once, show up in the primary. Don't even bother in the other. And now I'm talking about Congress again. So separate out that the presidential election, you know, matters after the primary too. So what we need to do is increase the power of votes. And then money will, if it can't, 
look, if someone can't get elected, it doesn't matter how much money you gave them, they can't do what you wanted them to do. Mm -hmm. So that will provide an alternate force in the marketplace that will more effectively address pernicious negative effects of money in politics than artificially restricting it, which is A, probably requires a constitutional amendment. Right. B, likely has lots of unintended consequences and sets up just new ways to get around it and optimize. You know, and C, it's just gonna make everybody mad. I, I just, and it's gonna take forever. It's not on the efficient frontier of political change. And as I said before, if you leave the existing incentives the same, you're just gonna make it cheaper. Yeah. Because they still only will care about party primary voters, donors, and special interests, because that's the only people that affect re-election in the current system. Yeah. Catherine, this is fascinating. We could literally go on all day, but I do, I do want to pivot a little bit and talk a bit more about sort of the whole of your career. You ran your, your, a food company, innovative food company that your grandfather started back in the late 1890s, as I understand it, who then passed it along to your father, who then passed it along to you. Maybe talk a little bit about lessons learned in that family business and how you're applying them to what you're doing now. We've talked a lot about competition and a lot about how you're applying business sense to this, but maybe on a more personal level, um, what you learned that you're applying to your work today. I'll talk in a more personal level in a moment, but I really did, I'll just close up our previous section on this benefit of competition yeah. and the efficiency it drives and the innovation it drives. I've started to call our effort free market politics. Mm. so that we can get the innovation, the results, and the accountability that, that is, that exists in healthy industries. So I learned that in my entire business career, not just, of course, during the time I spent in my family's company. Now for personal things that I learned Oh my goodness. I mean, my life is just one mistake and learning after another. Um, the best way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is the best way. Although, um, yeah, I mean, you learn so much. What, what's my favorite? It's not my favorite, but there's a, there's a saying that I heard some time ago, you know, I wish I knew what I know now when I looked like I looked then. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, sister. I'm <laughs> <laughs> now at that point where I'm like so happy with everything I know. I mean, I'm not saying I know everything, but you know, I know a lot more than I did before, but uh, there's, a, there's a cost in years. Um, so here's, here's the biggest thing I learned in my career in business about personal, which is you have to take a lot of risk. So in the early years of my career, I did it a bit more like school, which is, oh, this is what's assigned to you. So, and these are, you know, the, supposed to be this long and you have to, you know, reach these criteria for your paper or, you know, your test, whatever. And so do the assignment and do it well and get your A and, 
you know, move on and then they give you the next one. And what I finally realized in business was that doing the assignments as they came, in a sense, led to this really slow, slow climb. Like you never had any breakthroughs and everything was, I mean, my career was good. It looked good, I suppose. But I always kind of knew that, oh, yeah, I'll be able to do that. There wasn't any risk in it. I wasn't doing things that I might fail at, which really means I wasn't doing things that were pushing my limits. And I also wasn't doing that many things that were going to make as much of a difference in the organizations I was working in or the causes I was working for. Because really risk is coupled with advancement Mm -hmm. as an individual and as an organization. And so eventually, I mean, I, I did figure that out. Was there an aha moment? Was there a moment where you re where you that crystallized for you? Oh my gosh. If I had, if I had just been doing this sooner. There are somewhat multiple moments, but but here's one that's emblematic of the realization and, and goes into my personal life, uh, which I'll share with she said, she said. <laughs> Thank but you. Maybe not on, I don't know, uh, meet the press, but they haven't invited me. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, in my early 30s, I was in a relationship with someone, uh, a wonderful person who was absolutely wildly successful. And I was you know, doing very well, shall we say. But I mean, like, very well would be here. And then, you know, sort of his success would be something you cannot see in this little box. And we intellectually were very compatible. Um, and at one point, uh, you know, so it sort of felt like we were very much peers in a lot of ways. But at one point, he, um, we discovered that we had both been voted most likely to succeed in our high schools. Just a factoid. <laughs> but for some reason, I kept, I, I like thought about it. Okay, so we both had this raw talent and everything. And why am I here? And he's here. And I didn't really want to be here in his career, but he was on a totally different trajectory than I was. I mean, completely. And I realized, oh, he took tons of risks and I took none. I took none. I I took the assignment people gave me and did a great job at it and didn't take any credit for anything and didn't, you know, put myself out there and no risk, no reward. And he took risk after risk after risk after risk. And they didn't all pay off, but enough of them paid off. And I would say that really was one of the turning points for me. Yeah, if he hadn't taken those risks, they never would have ta- would never would have paid off, right? Yes, not yes, taking them I, is not going to get you that outcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so it just sort of it just provided like a personal illustration of oh, I'm I better get going, you know, because the slope of my line is not getting there. Yeah. How much of that, Catherine, do you think is kind of hardwired? You know, he was a man, you're a woman. How much of that is, do you think is sort of natural wiring versus something that you can clearly learn? Does that make sense? Um, I don't think it's natural wiring. Um, I think 
but I think it's often learned wiring from a very young age. So we just think it's kind of natural. Now I, you know, I'm not a psychologist or an expert on any of these things. Um, but in general, uh, speaking in generalities, I think that at least when I was growing up, it was men were learning more to take these risks and women were learning more not to take them. And one thing that I've only recently realized is also that men were learning to take credit for their accomplishments <laughs> and women were learning to live by the aphorism you know, there's no limit to what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. Right. And that, I totally lived my life by that. And that is true in any particular project. But here's the problem. If a woman lives by that, and therefore is part of a very successful project, but then doesn't get credit for it, and someone else does, let's just say a man for this purpose. Then when we get to the next hard project, the man is in charge of it and she's junior. And then there's success in that project. And then we get to the next project and he's out here and she's still here. Meaning eventually the credit does matter because if you don't get it, you don't grow the foundation to be in charge of the next. So, you know, there's the saying that the, you know, the rich get richer. Right. Well, there's also those with credit get more credit. <laughs> and so women need to, women, everybody, I mean, people do need to concern themselves with credit if they want to increase their ability to make a difference in the world. Not because it's just for some ego, egotistical purpose, although there's certainly, I mean, that's a factor that affects people's motivations. But because if they don't, then they don't get, they don't get considered. So they have to not accept, um, you know, being pushed to the background and not, you, you always want to share credit. You just don't want to get not, oh, like, you know, no, it wasn't me. It was that, you know, like yeah. be self-effacing. And I was totally, well, I don't know that maybe my family wouldn't say it was self-effacing, but you know, I was in general <laughs> doing things and be, oh no, it's, you know, it was that person or this person or whatever. And then finally I realized, Hey, this, um, you know, and that actually happened to me in this book um, in a lot of ways, because even though I originated politics industry theory and the whole strategy for change and, and connected the full time, yeah. and then I have my co-author and because I use a five person, people do have a hard time conceiving that I created it and not him. Fascinating. They actually think I am his junior partner, even though like I'm the first author. I mean, they just can't conceive that it was me. Yeah. When, um, when it was you who attracted him to the project, right? Yeah. Like, really, well, not just said, I mean, I, 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 you know, the politics industry theory was fully developed before he, you know, joined uh -huh. as the co-op. And again, it's been a phenomenal partnership. He's brought a lot to it. But the misperception, and that's because he has so much credit, I mean, and well-deserved, and so that's wonderful, but, but because in part, not, not that I had done things that, you know, would have garnered me the credit that Michael Porter has as 
in, in his uh, sphere, but because it's sort of like, well, how did she come from nowhere to come up with this idea? It must have been his idea. Um, that hurts. And, and here's why it hurts because, and this is the first time in my life where I really pushed for the credit as the originator of politics industry theory. And here's why that matters. Because if I didn't get the credit for it, you wouldn't be talking to me. Right. You would be waiting until he fit it into his schedule. And so getting credit for this is directly related and it is the right, you know, um, it's the right assessment of, of what I did in this effort. And that's related to whether it's ever going to be successful or not, because I'm the one who works in this full time and is driving this forward. So it, it just totally matters for the work. And there have been times when I have had to say things that even seven years ago, I never would have said, I never would have corrected people about some, you know, something at my family company that I did instead of my father doing. But in this work, I have as hard as an, and as uncomfortable as it has often been, been careful. And that's, I mean, it's still hard, you know, but to make clear where the ideas came from, et cetera, so that I can have as much power as possible to make as much difference as we want to make. Right. And women really need to do that. And they need to stop thinking what I thought for the first 48 years of well, 49 years of my life that you shouldn't want credit for anything. Right. Or, sh or shouldn't seek it. Right. You can want it, but not actually. Well, you shouldn't even, I even thought you shouldn't even really want it. Like somehow that was bad. Like if you wanted it, you weren't really a very good person or something, you know what I mean? So now I say, no, 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 go get it because here's what the world needs. More people with more credit making more difference. Credit is not like a limited thing. Right. If you get it, no one else, everybody else gets less. It means we have more powerful people that people would be willing to follow to do things. And for women in particular, that's a very powerful totally. message. Totally. We need, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, we need more people that we would like to say, oh, are you, uh, are you, you know, campaigning for that or leading that? I'll invest. I'm a yes. I'm on board. We need more buy-in, not less buy-in. So we need more leadership, not less leadership. These are difficult times. More is better. Yeah. So women should grab the deserved more. I probably shouldn't ask this question, but I will. Do you think that the lack of credit was because you are a woman? I kind of hate this question, but it seems like such an obvious thing to ask that because your co-author is a man, a very experienced one, credentialed Harvard professor, clearly has a tremendous pedigree, right? But so do you. Different, but you have a tremendous track record in business. Does it, was it because you are a woman? Um, so let me say a couple of things. Um, I do have a, 
great track record. I did an amazing turnaround in my company also, which I didn't, you know, sort of ever put out there, you know, right. so it wasn't quite, but, um, but it's not my co-author's pedigree. I mean, he changed the way businesses run globally, you know, so, I mean, there's no comparison between our track records when we got to this project. Um, but so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, um, that it's because I am a woman that people had a hard time sort of conceiving that it was mine. I think it really was the force of the ease of just assuming that it was this brilliant person's next brilliant idea. Right. Um, but let me, let me tell you that there is now data. I'm looking for this book. Okay. I can't find the book. It's called The Formula. Okay. And it is about what success, you know, comes from and meaning success is defined by, by in a sense, who gets credit right. for things. And so there's academic data. It's a brilliant professor, Professor Albert Laszlo Barbasi, I think. I'm sorry if I'm not saying that. That's okay. Correctly, professor. So he, um, I, I read this book partway through, you know, my journey on this writing with Harvard Business School and then with Michael uh, of the book. And there is a quote in there that says that his data show, he looks at like how people author academic papers and who's the first author and who's all these other things. And there's a quote in there that says the data show that if you are a woman economist publishing with a man, you might as well not bother. Is that right? Yeah, that's what it says. Now that's his data, not my data. But now I was a woman who's not even an economist, you know, but publishing with the most cited economist in, you know, business and strategy in the world. So I was like, oh, this doesn't bode well. You know, um, but um, so so there's something about the dynamics and just the shorthand. And I'm not even blaming people are busy just make an assumption about who's in charge. You know, so so I again, is it because yes, I think some things are because not that I'm a woman, but just because of how society has made this work. You know. Right. Right. And I personally think it's my responsibility. It is my responsibility to say the hard things sometimes right. that might make people think, oh, she's a little pushy or something. It's my responsibility, not just for me, but for other women. And also not just for other women, but for anybody who, uh, you know, might be in a position to be growing their platform and therefore their power and influence to affect change in the world, you know, to be put in a position to do that. But we shouldn't, we should do two things. It's just not because it's right to do it this way, because it's the most effective. We should take responsibility for ourselves and then we should do as much as we can for other people, you know, so even if someone's not doing it for us, we should be doing it for other people. Right. But we should not just be doing it for other people. We should also be doing it for ourselves. And, and we should, we can look out into the world and read a book like The Formula, 
which is this uh, Professor Barabasi's book, and understand the dynamics in the marketplace because we want to be realistic, but we should not understand them simply for the purpose of saying, oh, so that's why it's stacked against me. We Don't should understand them for the purpose of saying, okay, I see what I have to do. Yeah, love that. I love that. It's awesome. One final question. Um, just very quickly, the impact that you hope you will have had. I am a lover of our country, of the sort of potential that we have in the world, you know, as imperfect as we are, because we have not lived up to our ideals, but our ideals is that North Star and the progress uneven though it's been that we have made. Um, I believe in this. And I absolutely do not believe that if we leave our elections the way they are now, that this country is going to make it as the free representative democracy that it is. Because if we don't change the way our elections work, we're not going to deliver results that improve the opportunities and quality of life for the broad group of all Americans. And democracy is an ideal that is really important, but democracies need to deliver results or people will reach for something that they think will deliver results because yes, everybody would rather have freedom and results, but you can't sustain generations of freedom with no results mm. because people will look at their children and their grandchildren and think they need some results. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about, you know, their economic situation, sure. their, their independent agency, their quality of life, all of that. And so then they'll reach for something else and they won't know that they're turning away from democracy, but they'll reach for something. And eventually, you know, you move into authoritarianism. I mean, that's, you know, right. have failed over the years. And right. so what I hope is that I can be one of the people in this day and age who um, bring forward what I think is the best opportunity we have to powerfully alter Congress's delivering of results in as short a period of time as possible. With all the caveats I gave you earlier about how democracy will still be messy and hard and all of that, I, I'm, I'm completely committed that this happen and I won't, I'll know interimly or in the interim if it's a success in the sense of, well, how many places, you know, put these, how many campaigns did we get started? How many campaigns won? How many people got elected under these rules? But eventually you have to look and say, okay, did Congress actually solve these issues that already behind closed doors, the broad outlines of agreement have been reasonably known for 10, 15 years, but there's no political will to get them done. And that's the end outcome. 
So I want to do whatever I can to look back in 15 and 20 years and say that I was a part of changing the incentives so that we could do what needs to be done in this country to, you know, keep our promise. Yeah, Catherine, loved having you. This was an amazing conversation. You are incredibly inspiring. I know our listeners will really love hearing your thoughts and perspectives. Again, the book is called The Politics Industry, and I will include a link to the book as well as to your terrific organization in the show notes. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Laura. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. If you're new to She Said, She Said podcast, please be sure to check out our past episodes, including the new short form pods. These are five to 10 minutes of perspective on a topic that comes up that I think you guys will really appreciate. And before I let you go, I also want to ask a favor. If you're enjoying She Said, She Said podcast, and I sure hope you are, I would be so grateful if you could share us with your friends And I would also be so grateful if you would go on iTunes and give us a nice review. Just a few quick words and five stars, if you don't mind, would be awesome. Nice words and nice reviews make a big, big difference. They help us move up the charts and they help others who are looking for content like this to find it more easily. I really appreciate you being here as always. And I hope that you found some great perspective and got a positive lift for your week. I'll see you next time. Take care.